Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray and Anna Chizinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Chizinski. My fact this week is that the rearview mirror was invented so that racing drivers didn't have to have a person sitting next to them in the car explaining what was going on behind them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Yes, yeah, so I, I think bizarrely I found this out because I saw a post from an insurance site or something. But anyway, it was invented mm. for the Indy 500 inaugural race in 1911. So the Indy 500 is that big race that happens in Indianapolis. 1911, it was won by a guy called Ray Haroon. And basically the reason he won it was that he realised that the cars always had two people in them. The driver and then the person who had to do a number of things, one of which included turning round and saying if there were any cars behind them in dangerous positions to make sure there wasn't a pile-up or a big crash. And Ray thought that's a lot of extra weight. Wonder if I can avoid that. And what he did was he got a mirror and placed it in the middle of his car, hanging in the middle of his car on a pole, and then he won the race because he halved the weight in the car. He did win the race, although we're not 100% sure that he actually won the race, as in he got given the prize, but the truth was that no one really knew how to count all the laps or time things or anything like that, and there were loads of uh, pit stops, so really no one actually knew who won the race. How do they decide? They just went, I feel like it should be over now, next person to cross the line. <laughs> a little bit like that. There was a guy who, there was a guy whose job it was to kind of put who was in the lead, and they would change it every now and then. But the truth was that, you know, some people took two minutes to change a tyre, some people it took them 15 minutes to change a tyre, some cars would come out of the pit lane, and then back up over the finishing line and then go back over again so it added an extra no. <laughs> that really happened that wouldn't oh be my God. That, that couldn't have been allowed <laughs> they didn't know what was going on at all they, yeah. they just didn't have the technology to work out times or anything like that this that sounds like a cheat that you would do in Mario Kart <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I remember doing that kind of thing in Diddy Kong Racing and you see how close you can loop around the finishing kind of post for it to count and it never does never does no. so the technology there is more advanced than that <laughs> there was a guy called Mulford who um, was pretty sure sure that he'd won and he went across the finishing line and then what you always did was you did an insurance lap at the end just to make sure that you've done the right distance because <laughs> people might think oh you've done one not enough and so he did his insurance lap and then when he got to the end of the insurance lap he found that someone else had claimed the victory which was Haroon oh. and Haroon was already being cheered as the victor and he's like no wait a minute I finished like two minutes ago wow I think but that Haroon used to work as a chauffeur Yes. And he apparently, I read one account that said he got the idea for a rearview mirror in a car from a rearview mirror that he saw in a horse-drawn carriage. That's yep. what he said, ah. certainly. Yeah. Well, that yeah. makes sense because pretty much everything in cars came from horse-drawn carriages, didn't they? I guess so. But yeah. it's just funny thinking of a horse-drawn carriage with mirrors. I was looking for um, horse-drawn carriage mirrors, and I don't think they were really a thing. The only reference I could find to advising there be mirrors in horse-drawn carriages were saying there has to be a mirror in order that the lady in the carriage at some point might want to check her makeup. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it seems like that was, that was the real innovator, that guy in the horse-drawn carriage that he saw. Yeah, um, just on horse-drawn carriages and how they uh, sort of competed with cars, there was this early concept in 1899 when there was a point where cars and horse-drawn 
horse-drawn carriages were intermingling, and it was scaring farmers, and it was particularly scaring horses. So a guy called Uriah Smith, and this was in Battle Creek, Michigan, invented this contraption called the horsey horseless carriage, (laughs) and you put a horse's head on the front of your car. And it looks like you're just riding a horse, but you're actually driving your car. Sort of, except that the horse doesn't have a back end, does yeah, it? Yeah, but I guess if you're approaching a horse, it would be like, oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's like a if a horse was entering the room and only its head had popped in, you might think it was a horse. Yeah. But then... Is it like in um, a pantomime if one guy doesn't turn up? It is like that. <laughs> is it? It's, and it's, just, it's quite frightening because it's just up to the neck. It looks like someone stuffed and mounted a horse's head and stuck it on the front of their car to oh, our yeah. eyes. Yeah. And the other thing was that they said, because I, th- I read a bit about it, they said that I think the horse's head was full of petrol. Yes, because oh, really? it was an extra fuel reserve That's in case you ran idea. it in the main tank. It is a good idea until you hit something, at which point it becomes a real uh, fire liability. Yes, because you just smash a big petrol tank into someone else. Yeah, explosion. Oh, yeah. But they were—they were so paranoid, weren't they? I think we—we we did a QI episode on this a few years ago. But there was that thing where various rules were written in the highway code or equivalent in America, which said things like. If you're driving a car and you think a horse is approaching about a mile away, you hear horse popping in approach, you have to carry with you a scene of the surrounding countryside, which you stop your car and you throw the countryside scene over your car so oh to God. frighten the that's, horse. That's so annoying, especially when it's just a guy with two coconuts walking past you. <laughs> I thought it was that you had to dismantle the car. And sometimes you, you had to this? dismantle the just car. The yeah. whole car. Yeah, yeah, you just sort of have to take it apart and hide it behind a hedge that was written down as well. Now, I remember researching this and I think there was a lot of exaggeration mm, about yeah, okay. the... So I could never work out what they actually did and mm. what was actually written as a joke in the Highway Code. And but. I don't think they ever actually fully produced the horsey, horseless thing. Mm. It was, yeah, it was concept Patent. designed and patented, yeah. yeah. Mm. There have been some great car patents over the years, though. I was looking at some of them. So one car invention that never really took off was in 1935, the dog sack. Which is, if you don't want to keep your pet in your car because it gets hair everywhere, then it's a sack that clamps onto the running board of the car and then it hooks onto an open window and you tie your dog up in it and right. you can carry it outside the car. That's good because dogs like to stick their head out of the window, don't they? Perfect. They're just now the whole body's outside the window. Yeah, that's what wow. they've always wanted. If you put a dog in one of those, it would probably stick its head in the window. I think dogs just <laughs> yeah. like sticking their head through windows. <laughs> that's my theory. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> that's true. Um, did you hear about the steering wheel of death? No. <laughs> this was um, this was a car innovation on a Cadillac, the 1954 Cadillac Eldorado. So these are obviously really expensive cars, you know, they're very luxurious. But the steering wheel of this Cadillac, it had a kind of bullet-shaped spike in the middle of it. Right. So imagine a really large bullet, the right. the, the pointy end of the bullet, yep. you know, oh, yeah. the, the front end, as yeah. it were. So that was just in the middle of the steering wheel. So obviously that's quite dangerous in the event of a crash. Yeah. And that's how it got the nickname. And Sammy Davis Jr., he had a crash in one of those cars and his face hit the wheel and he lost an eye as a result. Sorry, no do you, did you explain why they had this spike in the steering wheel? Aesthetics. No way. Designed. What? It's not useful. It wasn't useful for anything. It was, you know, when that was the era when cars had these fantastic. Oh, that was the era where there were spikes in the middle of every car, like an Iron Maiden that you would drive around. Boxes of TNT. (laughs) It's more rounded than a full-on spike. Right. It doesn't look like it doesn't look like an actual spike, but it does look like a big bullet. But Sammy Davis Jr. lost his eye because of that. Yeah. Wow. 
Oh. Well, there was that um, idea that someone came up with, which was just a design idea. It wasn't real, of putting a massive spike in every steering wheel. And the idea is it would just make everyone drive really carefully. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of an airbag. It's a real carrot or stick kind of approach. <laughs> the Duke of Edinburgh has been impaled again. <laughs> Here's another Cadillac invention, just very quickly, that didn't work out. Um, they tried to put working toilets in the inside of their cars. Uh, that was in 1947. You can see photos of it. It looks really incredible. Great it, idea. It was in the back seat. Yeah, and you you would have what was a proper toilet in this photo. Um, but the problem was it just didn't make sense, really, to have it. There was what? A lot of, Why not? Why not? Because the um, amount of space that you'd need for the tank, uh, for the flush, <laughs> the smell was too great. There was a lot of splashback, apparently, in the testing. Um, and the smells, yeah, just These generally like problems we can overcome yeah. it's true it, it looked so cool i mean splashback for instance obviously don't have it be water-based silly yeah. oh just have a like a cat litter tray exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make sandcastles if you don't need the loo it's multi-purpose that's the thing there are lots of rules aren't there about how uh, fun you can make things on the road like service stations right there mm-hmm. are rules in fact there are laws about what you're allowed to have at a service station because the road net the motorway network is so important for people for you know transport that you can't have say i don't know a casino at a service station because you can't have anything there that would mean people went there specially. It's interesting though because every single mm. service station does have slot machines in it. Yeah, remember when we were on tour? Literally we, every yeah. single yeah. one. Yeah. Casino was a very bad example. A cinema. Oh, a <laughs> That's the only reason there are no brothels <laughs> next to the m It has to be just you know refueling, going to the toilet and the slot machines. <laughs> <laughs> important stuff <laughs> there's so much fun stuff on the british highway well they very recently opened a, a weatherspoons in one of them didn't they and that was a massive oh, deal and everyone wow. thought it was a terrible idea because you shouldn't have be able to sell alcohol at service stations but they yeah. did do i went into a box that simulated a hurricane on one of the spots <laughs> on, on our tour did you make a special journey would you make a special no, journey but, no we that? were on no no i wouldn't i went to it blew my glasses off it's very dangerous i think <laughs> but i've never heard of that being anywhere else like a yeah, hurricane bus that's true yeah so which services was it at? it was what it was when we were on tour our last tour no, we don't, were... don't encourage it this whole point is you shouldn't make special journeys no, to going. service stations <laughs> I'm, oh, God. I'm going because then i'm going to get drunk at the weather spoons play a bit of slot machines <laughs> do the hurricane thing go to the brothel and then drive back <laughs> great news i got blown off at the services <laughs> and then i did the hurricane box <laughs> Back to the Indy 500 quickly, Uh do you mind? Uh, So one of the things with the Indy 500 winners is that they drink a cup of milk after the race. And it's a tradition that was born in 1936. Lewis Mayer, he finished and he asked for buttermilk after the race. And it was a dairy executive who saw him drinking it in a picture and they sort of, they must have approached them and that tradition Mm. was born. And so when you're going to race, they ask you what kind of milk would you like (laughs) just so we can have it ready for you. Does that mean like a full fat or half fat? Exactly. And uh, majoritively it's full fat, they found. Uh, They just released the latest um, sort of... Preferences. Oh, sorry, I was Although, why are you surprised by that? I just like semi-skim milk, and I suppose. And you thought, because you're such a great racing driver, you thought surely all the rest yeah, of them do as well. Buddies. <laughs> well, in this in this hipster era, they must be having to stock way more milk oh, than yeah. usual, they, because milk. they'll be having almond and oat and lacto-free. In 1913, um, the winner was Jules Gou, who was a French driver. He won by 13 minutes actually, um, but he drank champagne throughout the race. In fact, um, some people. <laughs> 
people think he might have had as many as six bottles of champagne during the course of the race. Wow. <laughs> awesome. He definitely had at least half a pint in his first pit stop, and then he was drinking it throughout the race. Wow. The champagne. So he won the race, but he did lose his driving license. <laughs> <laughs> he would really have benefited from the car with a toilet in the back. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> you can't climb into the back of the car halfway through racing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the trophy for the Indy 500 uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, which I wasn't really, is ridiculous. It's amazing. It's revolting. So oh. it's. <laughs> I love it. Dan loves it. It's um. <laughs> so it's five foot tall. It's ridiculously large. Uh, it's all made of silver. And as soon as you win the race, you get your head sculpted onto it and attached. Oh. And then they ran out of space on it in the eighties, I think. So they had to add an extra level so they could get more heads on it. So it's got all the old guys' heads as it's, well. It's Everyone's got the old head. heads. It's got the it's... French guy looking a bit pissed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone else has got like that milk moustache that you get. <laughs> okay, it's time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that a 2018 paper suggesting that people who have a surname which occurs towards the end of the alphabet are more likely to end up academically and professionally undistinguished was co-authored by Professor Jeffrey Zacks. <laughs> I love co-author because he couldn't even individually author his own paper. <laughs> and he, well, he co-authored it with the guy whose name was Corley, beginning with C. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he was uh, the brains behind it, wasn't he? The C guy. <laughs> well, Jeffrey Zacks is quite cool actually he's a university of boulder psychologist and i listened to an interview with him on um, a radio show called top of the mind and they asked him you know is the reason you're doing this because obviously you had a bad time of it because of your name and he said he was sensitized to the issue because of that but actually it doesn't affect him because according to their study it doesn't affect people who are distinguished in any other way so if you're kind of top of your class at school or bottom of your class or you look different or you're more attractive or less attractive it doesn't really affect you it only affects people who are right in the middle uh, but they found that actually it does affect them it means it gives them um, less distinction at high school less satisfaction at high school and lower educational attainment after they've left school mm. and until you're about middle-aged it affects you quite badly according to them what's the justification here is it just about reading out the I register know. and so there are a few different reasons um it's so for instance uh, infant school a lot of kids are put in alphabetical order so the kids beginning with a are near the front of the class mm -hmm. which means they get more attention mm -hmm. and people just tend to get asked more for things so um for not school for instance um if your name is towards the start of the alphabet you're less likely to give money to charity and that's because you get rung up more because your name is at the front of the alphabet yeah. and you get more annoyed by it and oh, so you're wow. less likely to give money really yeah it's also like in um, when it's graduation and they're handing out diplomas. This is one of the things mentioned. Mm. You start A to Z. It's all really exciting at the top. And yeah. then by the time you get to Zuckerberg, oh, you know. Yeah, and that's why he never made anything. Exactly. Himself, right? But when you get to the end, most people have left because they want to get the restaurants early. And oh. everyone who's applauding, their arms are tired and stuff like that. Yeah. And so it's that's no terrible. And I can understand if you're marking a big pile of exam papers and mm. Aaron J. Aronson makes a point and then Sammy... Zami makes a, the same point. You think, I read this in Aaron J. Aronson's article, and that was hours ago. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So market lower. So, and the teacher might say, okay, um, can someone read the a report? Um, Aaron J. Aronson, can you do it? And then by the time Zuckerberg gets there, he just never gets asked. And so you have mm -hmm. less confidence in public speaking as well. 
<laughs> so this genuinely does seem to be a thing. Yeah. Although those... I'm not sure about his way of, um, I'm not sure about Zax's way of combating it. One of the ways he says he combats it is that he is a professor, so he has students, and he always calls the class register in reverse order, which seems to me <laughs> to just be recreating the problem That's the opposite true. way around. Yeah. He suggests that people should maybe do something to distinguish themselves, like dress strangely or something. That's one of the specific <laughs> things he said. Like just so that people notice you because it's the people who aren't noticed who struggle uh. the most. Oh, no. And if you're later on in the alphabet, you're more likely not to be noticed if you're otherwise undistinguished. Right? Yes, that's okay. right. Um, and it works the other way around. So there's another study, which is that authors whose surnames are ranked towards the front of the alphabet are more likely to be cited in scientific papers. Oh. And that was um, lead authored by a guy called Arsnolt. Mm, um, so nice. he has obviously seen that he's been cited more often than others because he's an A and also he has the word arse in his name, <laughs> which might help. <laughs> and for presidential candidates in America, that's another thing they think influences because that's in alphabetical order as well yeah. when you go in for um, doing that. So you're more likely to go for someone at the Who's top of the... Who's this George Washington guy? Well, he's the only no one way. put himself in place, hasn't <laughs> yeah. he? Yeah. Thought... Who you're came saying... after him? Adams. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying that George Washington only became president because he seized power. Because yeah, he pulled a zap he would put himself in. Never have won a fair election. Yeah, okay. He, uh, there are definitely countries where it's law that on the ballot paper you have to mix it up, aren't there? Uh, or you oh, do half and okay. half on ballot papers because, yeah, people just tick an A. Because it's a lot of effort when you go to the ballot box and you're in a hurry to get to work anyway. You just cross the first one you see, don't you? Yeah. Mm. One thing I think Zach's found, which is encouraging, is that by the time you're in your mid-30s, the effect lessens to the point yeah. of disappearance. Because you've been distinguished in some other way by then. Yeah. So people are judging you not on your name, by, but on what you've done in life. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was because you weren't having register taken anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, by the time you're 35. Um, the paper, just for anyone listening, is called Alphabetism, the Effects of Surname Initial and the Cost of Being Otherwise Undistinguished. <laughs> and that paper has 96 citations, and I counted them, and there are 77 from A to M and only 17 from N to Z. Wow. So they're compounding the problem. Proof. <laughs> <laughs> I find it so weird that Leonardo da Vinci doesn't have a surname. <laughs> always, yeah, true. always thought that was his surname yeah. How of, people... of Vinci just yeah. for people who are like me who didn't know that yeah yeah but what do you mean by it doesn't have a surname because our surnames are like that as well in the end that does end up being your surname so there was for instance in 2016 I think that someone compiled a dictionary of 50,000 surnames from Britain that go all the way back to like the 11th century and they found that about half of the most common ones were locative which is basically that uh, ones that say what place you're from you know, so like less if your surname is Lester or if your surname's and I can't think of like Jack London or Stafford. Stafford, exactly. So it's st it's still the same kind George of thing Washington. Really today. George Washington. Washington. Washington yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys know if any of your surnames have a? Uh, mine will be kin. Will mean family of. I should think uh, yeah. it's Irish yes. anyway. Yes, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. Don't know about Murray. Murray, I read ages ago. It's both. There's claims for it in Scotland and Ireland. Um, the battle out for mm. what the original... Murray is a place, presumably in Scotland as well. Moray, yeah. yeah Moray, Moray Firth. There's a Moray eel. Yeah, <laughs> You're so, named after the eel. Aren't yeah, you? yeah, well, I think there is an eel somewhere in my family tree. <laughs> yeah. And Tashinsky, a ski means son of. Tashinsky, well, Tashinsky is like a bird. The name is like a bird. So some are descriptors, and that's one of the most common types of name you have as well when you go back why are you looking at me I, I am like a bird because it's I'm like a bird <laughs> the <deadly laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well about a fifth of surnames in fact in our country are like that as in descriptors so like Goodfellow 
That's a nice descriptive one. Yeah. yeah. Short is either means that the person who had that nickname was really short, or it often meant that they were really tall. So you never know. Because <laughs> it it's like a funny, ironic thing, you That's know, when you're brilliant. like, all right, shorty. And it was a tall guy. There were quite a lot of those That's in medieval Does it? Could it mean that whoever was called Goodfellow was actually a bit of a twat? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas poor Derek Twat <laughs> from one of the nicest and kindest families in the town. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that grocery bags used in Hollywood movies don't rustle. How? And yeah. why aren't we allowed them? I know. So this is, uh, <laughs> this is something that I read on a website called proptricks.com. This is the website of a man who invented these bags I'm about to tell you about. Tim Schultz is his name. And it's when on movie sets you see people carrying any kind of bags. Usually when you're recording, that makes so much noise that they can't cancel out that it ruins scenes. They have to constantly mm. re-record scenes. And he was on the set of a TV show back in the day that starred Martin Lawrence called Martin. And Martin, as he's coming into the room, gets his pants taken off by a door frame that he gets caught on. <laughs> so he has to exit wearing only a bag. And right. it kept rustling, or rather, that was the scene. And he thought, how are we going to do this without it causing so much noise that you're mm. not going to hear the scene? So he went away and invented a silent grocery bag. Wow. Yeah. What? And it's used in tons of movies now. And he's expanded his horizons. It's not just grocery bags. He's got department store bags, bakery bags, lunch store bags, doggy bags. He's done silent gift tissue and silent cellophane for wrapping flowers in. Wow. Which aren't completely silent. You can hear them slightly. Because it would very... be weird if someone was wrapping a present that there was no sound effect. Yeah, you well, would you can add it. that on Well, no, poster. that's the point. Is oh, exactly, yeah. you add it on post with Foley. Um, mm. Yeah. So how, do you know what they're made of? I've tried to find out, but I wonder if it's, yeah. if I haven't dug hard enough or it's an industry secret that he's holding mm. on to, like the secret of Coca-Cola yeah. mix. He could at least tell theatres, couldn't he? He could at least put them on boiled sweets in theatres, because I think that's where that causes the most problems, is plas mm. the plastic crackling thing. There is a company called Silent Snacks um, that in 2016 launched a whole load of products to have in cinemas and theatres which don't rustle or don't make any noise. Wow, like what? Uh, ground bread. popcorn so basically oh, instead of being like lumps of popcorn it's just kind of popcorn dust disgusting uh, <laughs> cocoa butter balls <laughs> uh, they, they kind of melt in your mouth rather than like I guess like M&Ms that might crunch, crunch. Mm -hmm. um, crisps They've got silent crisps. Well, the dehydrated pear slices. <laughs> Apparently they're just bendy enough to be pleasant, but not too crisp. Um, I don't think any level of bendiness in my crisp is pleasant. No? No, I don't think you want a bending crisp I at all. I think if you hear the phrase, it's just bendy enough to be pleasant. <laughs> that date's taken a bad turn. <laughs> they also invented an anti-gas grapefruit drink. Um, anti-gas? Anti is it not burping? Stop or? you burping and farting, yep. Oh, is that a major problem in um, cinemas? It is if you go with me. <laughs> oh, Can you great. play the last 10 minutes again, please? <laughs> um, so on movie props, the, the same newspaper has been being read in movies for about 20 years. There's this one newspaper that keeps cropping up in lots mm. and lots of films. It's been in uh, No Country for Old Men. It's been in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's been in Desperate Housewives. So when you see someone in a film reading a paper... Do you know what the headline is? Can you remember? No, I no, don't. No. I didn't write it down. Man lands on moon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've just got one more thing on how to keep a set quiet oh, when yeah. you're filming. Mm -hmm. um, 
Lord of the Rings when they were filming. They obviously had a ginormous crew and there were two people on that crew whose job it was to sit at the local airport that they were closest to when they were filming (laughs) and to call ahead when planes were taking off so they knew to not film a scene because very soon, yeah, they would have... So you didn't have the sound of aeroplanes, you just had lots of sounds of mobile phones going off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, That's why Gandalf's pockets are always buzzing. (laughs) Um, In Lord of the Rings, one of the props they had actually was a giant ring. Or a big ring, anyway. So they really? had they had to have quite a lot of rings. There's one ring to right. rule them all, etc. But yeah, there's right. actually a number of replicas. <laughs> <laughs> Bring in another one of those one rings to rule them all. <laughs> uh, no, they, so, so it can fit different fingers because right, different right. people wear it. But then also they had a really big one about the size of a football, it looks like, in the photos. <laughs> and that's for when you do real close-ups, then you want it to look really intricate. Right. So there's a scene wow. where when you know you can sort of tell, it's a really seminal scene in the fellowship of the ring where um frodo drops the ring he's supposed to be carrying it and he's like oh no where's it gone and he looks up and boromir is picking it up and you see the ring being picked up out of the snow and that's a giant ring (laughs) no you don't see his hand come down Uh, you see the chain attached to the ring be lifted up so they made a big chain to go with it cool i know i thought you were gonna say because they're are they all dwarfs or something in lord of the rings hobbits Yeah. yeah. yeah so you'd need a big one to make it look like they're all really small. Is that not what I, I don't think that was why, but maybe it had that That's extra. a great... So that's the only prop they had to adjust the size of the Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> like Gandalf hands over a ring. You can see Frodo take this enormous ring. <laughs> They're not borrowers, I don't think. I haven't seen it. In the, in the book, or in the, the whole thing, does the ring change size? No. No. Um, I think so. Does everyone in the Lord of the Rings land have the same size fingers? Then? Yeah, that's a great that's question. Like no, you never wear it. You never wear the ring because no, yeah, they do. They go they disappearing. Do. It makes you yeah. invisible. So yeah. it presumably oh, must. Yes. Yeah, it yeah. must be magic to adjust to the owner's finger or some people it just doesn't fit on maybe sometimes you can put it like for instance <laughs> my wife's wedding ring will fit on my little finger yeah ah. uh, will fit so maybe they do that no it's not okay this ring has the power to create evil across the what? world my, my wife's is... wedding ring okay. <laughs> It can adjust size according to finger. It? Is that my a thing? Theory. I didn't know. I don't it's know not, if it no, is. I don't theory. know. So if I tried to put it on my neck, would it kind of get bigger so it went on my neck? It's a magic ring. It can do whatever yeah, it wants. One, but he never says, oh, it, and then it made itself a bit smaller so it could fit on Frodo's tiny finger. So you've got Frodo's cock. <laughs> Those scenes were deleted. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I I was reading a few blogs by a woman called Ellen Freund, I think, F-R-E-U-N-D, who is, I think she's one of Hollywood's main prop makers, really. It was really interesting. So she did the props for Mad Men and stuff like that, really good period pieces. But it must be so frustrating because a lot of the props that you make as a prop maker never get seen by an audience. Mm -hmm. They're just to create the environment for the actors so she was saying you know every single drawer that someone opened in Mad Men you wouldn't see inside it from the camera angle but you know the actors had to see all the stuff they thought their character might are you joking no way surely you can just put a little post-it note saying there is a stuff in this drawer there is stuff in this (laughs) drawer yeah no these people can't pretend that there's stuff in this drawer (laughs) they've got to see the stuff that's so patsy yeah no it turns out they're not very good actors at all but if the actors are freaked out by an empty drawer imagine how they're going to be freaked out by the massive film crew who are it's on the other half of their office. Yeah, <laughs> they all have to disguise themselves as wallpaper. <laughs> they all have to hide behind a picture of the countryside. <laughs> <laughs>
She made it sound kind of creepy also making props, Ellen did, because she said uh, you can obviously Google stuff of what things look like when you're trying to work out, you know, what a book would have looked like in the 1920s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't <laughs> possibly imagine. <laughs> but she chosen the one object that hasn't really changed over time. <laughs> she said you, the, really the only way you can get a proper idea for what, let's say she has to design a bunch of stuff for 13 Reasons Why, which she worked on, which is contemporary teenagers. Right. She said, you've got to go out into the world and see what they're actually wearing. So she said, um, I've got to go out and uh, stand near high schools, for instance, oh, and I'll watch the no. children all day to make no. sure that I understand what their backpacks but, but are But surely like. they all just wear school uniforms. And maybe she goes to the, the Mufti school. Mufti school. Yeah. It is Mufti in uh, 13 Reasons Why. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So she goes to Mufti schools. And then she says, I'll go down to the mall where I know the kids are shopping. And then, and then yeah. I'll watch them there to see what sort of stuff they're... I mean, she must look like a real weirdo. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. I'd say so. Especially depending on the kind of thing you're filming as well. Yes. If you're filming something set in a morgue, you have to go and hang out around a morgue <laughs> See all day. what they're wearing. But make sure you go to a Mufti morgue. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that eating ginger can make you feel better about drinking out of a toilet. Uh, is that because it tastes a bit better? Uh, it's not. It's yeah. and this is a. By the way, this is a toilet that's never been used. Oh, okay. So, would yeah. you drink out of a toilet that's never been used? Yes. Do I have any other options? Like, could I just drink out of a glass instead? No, the glass. There's no glass. There's no glass. So, am I really thirsty? Nah, you've. You had a cup of tea about an hour ago. <laughs> okay, yeah. Was there a ginger biscuit I had with this cup of tea? Yeah, yeah. All oh, right, okay. See, yeah, I'm cool. Yeah, that was, <laughs> ah, see, it works. Um, so this is an experiment. Ginger is said to help uh, prevent nausea. And there's a lot of debate about whether you get disgusted because of a moral judgment you've made or whether it's kind of the other way around, whether our moral judgments guide what we then find disgusting or whether disgust is inherent mm -hmm. and then we judge right. based on that. So there was an experiment at the University of British Columbia which gave patients ginger capsules and it experimented uh, how disgusting people found things when they had had those as opposed to when they hadn't had those. Yeah. So... It, and the experiment found that it reduced how disgusted people were by moderately disgusting photos, like a photo of some snot in a napkin. Mm -hmm. But it did not help extremely disgusting things like vomit in a toilet. Right. Mm -hmm. And they then tested how it affected so-called purity violations, which is a bit breaking taboos about purity and cleanliness. So, for example, people who'd taken ginger were less uh, strict about moderate violations, like drinking from a never-used toilet bowl. But it, apparently it did not have an effect on extreme purity violations like sex between cousins. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. But if you had more ginger, do you think? Yeah. How much ginger would you need? To shag your cousin. Is <laughs> <laughs> this implies that um, eating ginger, you can numb your moral compass, right? If you Pretty have much. to commit a crime, there's nothing you can do and you're grossed out by it. If I have a shed load of ginger, then I'll feel less guilty. It's, it's, it, they, said, they said it works to a certain extent, but it depends on the crime you're yeah. thinking. It of only works on really, really minor crimes. Yeah. One big study came out a few years ago that was saying that the more easily disgusted you are, the more likely you are to be conservative. And it can mm. actually be used as a predictor of your voting even. Um, so, And this, this holds true across 121 countries they looked at. Wow. So the more conservative people are, the more uh, easily triggered their disgust reactions are. What I found interesting is that, um, like you say, the people who are more disgusted are more likely to vote conservative. But also that between 2013 and 2016, the value of ginger imported into the UK has fallen by 15%. 
so maybe that's why we've become a more conservative country. People are eating less ginger. Maybe. Let's start giving out gingerbread biscuits on the streets. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's a thing called disgustology. Is it scientists who look into this call themselves disgustologists? Oh, yeah. Kind of a self-given name. That might become a surname in like 200 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, one woman who could have it is Professor Val Curtis, who has a lot of the thing you have to do when you're one of these scientists is you have to come up with scenarios. And in one of her experiments, uh, she had to come up with 70 different scenarios. And I just wanted to tell you a few of them. Okay. Can you <laughs> tell me whether they're disgusting or not? So uh, imagining a hairless old cat rubbing up against one's leg... That's all right. Uh, I'm not a big fan of cats in general, actually. Okay. Okay. That's a Siamese cat in my head. All right. Stepping on a slug in bare feet. I hate sl- like, have an actual phobia of slugs. No, okay. It's okay for me. Feeling someone cough into your face. I'm okay with that. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm I'm better with that than with the slugs. Okay. <laughs> Shaking hands with someone with scabby fingers. <laughs> Fine. Um, That's all right. Yeah, I'm a bit like, oh, but I wouldn't be disgusted. <laughs> I think I am the scabby fingers. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> finding out another finding out a friend attempted to have sex with a piece of fruit. <laughs> <laughs> You're only ever going to be amused by that. Depends <laughs> <laughs> on the fruit. <laughs> what fruit would not be amusing? <laughs> It's true, it's true. Um, two more. Learning your neighbour defecates in his back garden. Is that disgusting? It's his own back garden, <laughs> yeah. but he's your neighbour. Um, and the final one, is this disgusting or not? Seeing pus coming from a genital sore. That, <laughs> that wrapped up quite quickly, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I read a thing. There's this uh, psychologists have this um, idea that we have disgust disposal effect. It's the idea that if we are surrounded by things um, that disgust us, we really want to get out of the situation. And if you were, the, the study showed that if you were selling stuff, if you were exposed to things that disgusted you and then you had to do your deal, you would reduce the price massively just to get out of the situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, so if you're in a room that's full of vomit yes. and you're selling something on eBay. Yep. You will accept oh, a lower yeah. amount. But you're on a desktop computer which can't be moved out of the room. Yeah. And yeah. that's, the only PowerPoint is in that room that's full of vomit. Yeah. yeah. I think they did a different thing in their experiment. <laughs> oh, well, fine. <laughs> yeah. We, look, we all design our experiments differently. That's my one. <laughs> that's your one. Yeah. <laughs> It's weird though. I, it does because yeah. I think if you could then go to a market and haggle, and you could manufacture, like, say, put a naked, uh, hairless old cat against the man's <laughs> leg who's selling you the trinket, you could reduce your price <laughs> massively. I'm in a market haggling for a trinket, <laughs> yeah. and I've got my hairless naked old cat under my arm, yeah. and I need to rub that against the seller. You might get the reduced price with you my were scabby for. fingers as well, yeah. <laughs> and then tell you, you know, I just tried to have sex with that mango. <laughs> I think this is all in Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. Everything is up there, all of our previous episodes, tickets to our upcoming tour in March. Do come along. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you all then. Goodbye. Goodbye.